welcome to another episode of Downtime with the Cranston Public Library. We're a podcast for cool people who love libraries where we talk about what we've been reading, what we've been watching, and what we've been loving. I'm your host, Taylor, and the branch librarian at the Oaklawn Branch Library, and my pronouns are she, her. And I'm Zach. I'm an adult services librarian at the Central Branch of Cranston Public Library, and my pronouns are he, him. I'm Ellie Brown. I'm the Youth Services Coordinator for Cranston Public Library, and my pronouns are she, her. Welcome both of you back onto the show. I'm very excited because we are going to talk all about Cranston's summer reading program. So this episode will be your one stop to find out uh, everything about summer reading for all ages. But before we get to that, let's talk about what you both have been reading. I just read... um, Black Sun by Rebecca Roanhorse. And I don't know if either of you have read it all about her as an author. It's interesting because um, she is Native American, ethnically, half Native American, half Black, but she was adopted. And so she didn't grow up in her community. So she writes about um, Native American characters. Actually, her first couple books, Navajo characters, and her husband's Navajo. That's not her background. And she's controversial because she wrote some adult, like, urban fantasy, and then she wrote a children's chapter book, um, and they that also had fantasy elements, and she used some um, elements from Navajo myths that some people have pointed out you shouldn't play with that way. You should be more respectful. So, um, I, I think it's interesting because her identity is an interesting mix. So is it own voices or not? Because she definitely has Native American heritage, but she's writing about Navajo culture, not one that certainly not one she was raised in, not even like the, the community she was from. To, I have the sense that she's really trying to do a good thing, but not everybody likes how she's doing it. However, I didn't read any of those books. I just read her new one, which is the first in a fantasy trilogy. And I feel like it's going to go better for her with Black Sun because this was inspired by like ancient cultures. So I think people are less likely to come forward as like, you know, people who still practice a Mayan or Aztec religion and um, be concerned. And anyway, it's fantasy that's like inspired by. It's not contemporary where the characters actually map to um, you know, identities that people still have today. So I feel like I was like, all right, I'm going to dive in. I'm going to try this one. And I loved it. It was wild. It starts out the first chapter. Um, this young man, he's 12 years old and his mom is doing a ritual where she like has to carve these tattoos onto him and sew his eyes shut. And so it's definitely one of those things that gets you from the first chapter. Cause you're like, what is happening? And it follows four different characters. And that's just one of them. But he's like this crow god reborn. So if anyone reads N.K. Jemisin, I feel like this is really good. But sometimes N.K. Jemisin is too much for me because everyone's so brutal. Like the gods are just always doing horrible, destructive things to each other. And this one, you still have people doing horrible, destructive things. But there's more light humor and adventure mixed in with the gods doing horrible things. So for me, it was like the perfect mix. It's definitely high fantasy to see different from what you read before because it's not inspired by you know castles in Europe um the plotting is excellent I it's very rare I read a book that has four different main characters and then when I get to the end of one chapter I'm not like oh I don't want to switch and like go to see that person like I always have favorites you know and this one I'm not gonna say I didn't have a favorite because I did but I was 
pretty equally excited to find out what was going on with each of the four characters. So that really impresses me. So that's what I just finished. And, um, you know, now I'm in that situation where I'm checking the author's Goodreads page, like, when's the next book coming out? Which is such a problem with like, you know, epic fantasies. You read the first one and then you just have to wait because they're so big. It's like 500 pages. You're waiting for her to write the next one. Um, so that's where I'm at now waiting for her to write the next one, but it was, uh, it was an interesting, it was a really good book. I thought it was also interesting reading all about the author reading kind of, you know, different profiles of her and the coverage and kind of asking myself, what do I think about this? Not that anyone necessarily cares what I think about it, but I did think it was sort of an interesting case study, um, in what is own voices reading and writing and who can say what you can and cannot write about. So I just, uh, so I've just been filling my head. I've been thinking about it so much. So that's my latest. Did you see that we need diverse books has decided to completely stop using the hashtag own voices to talk about? Actually, no. Interesting. Yeah, I just saw that this morning. So they, they wrote like a little press release, like blog post for their site saying that they were going to stop using own voices when talking about materials and they were just going to state um, that author's identity. So instead of like, you know, a description about um, about a book being by a Korean American author and then it's saying like hashtag own voices, they'll just say like Korean American author with Korean American protagonists or, or characters and just be specific about like what representation is happening there and it seemed like it was motivated from some authors themselves not not necessarily liking the the connection so I don't know if maybe this controversy with this author is part of it but like some authors being like not super comfortable with the marketing of their book being own voices and the and the accuracy of that or lack of accuracy of that so I thought that was interesting that does make a lot of sense to me. That's totally new. So now you've given me more things to go read about. But yeah, like what if you are a writer who has a disability, but you're writing about a completely different disability? Or what if you, like, yeah, like Rebecca Roanhorse, you're writing about something where you, you have like this bloodline connection, but not the lived experience. So I definitely can see where it would get really complicated. And they were trying to do a good thing by highlighting when people are writing from their own experience. But the more you think about it, it's like a mirror reflecting a mirror and you can get an Unless it's specific. And in the end, unless we're writing <laughs> an autobiography, I guess, you know, you're always going to be writing somewhat outside of your experience, unless you're writing about something you, you know, that actually happened to you, which would be limiting um, if you were, if that was your goal to only write about things in a fictional sense that it actually happened to you. So um, I would love to hear more from those authors too, who are uncomfortable with that, because that resonates me too, because you don't always want to be the representative of like your people, whoever your people are, right? That's a big burden to carry around, to be the voice um, of a group that you may be part of. So that's an interesting perspective I never thought of too, is what if you're that author and everyone's like, Ooh, we're we're selling your book this way, and you're like, ooh, that makes me a little uncomfortable. Haven't heard that perspective, but it makes so much sense to me. And readers are going to apply labels anyway to what they're reading, regardless of what is in you know the press release or what the author's intentions are. So it's it's really interesting that that you mentioned Black Sun because that's been on my to read list, um, and I had forgotten about it. Um, so now I need to um, bump that up to the top of the list. Um, and I had no idea of the controversy 
um, around Rebecca Roanhorse's other work. So eye-opening. I have been reading um, a book called The Love Proof by Madeline Henry. I'm reading it because um, I'm going to be in conversation with the author on June 22nd for the kickoff event for the adult summer reading program. And I know we'll talk more about that later. Um, the Love Proof is about this young woman named Sophie who is a physics prodigy in her, her freshman year at Yale. And part of what's really interesting to me about this book is, um, I think it's a reflection of our culture. Um, she's described as this, this, this young woman um, who is going to be the next Einstein. And maybe it's because of the way that she's described so closely resembles the author photo on the dust jacket. Um, and the, the author photo is of a, a very young, fresh-faced woman. Um, it's fascinating to me that this is sort of um, antithetical to the stereotypical idea of who a physics prodigy can be. And so I think that's really interesting and important that she's doing this in this book. I haven't gotten that far into it to really know if that is a theme that is developed in it. Um, but basically what's going on in the book is that she meets this guy, Jake, um, at the beginning of the semester. They become a couple, and then she's going to be spending the rest of the book, from what I understand, sort of trying to figure out how multidimensionally love can survive and endure and cross planes and time and, and stuff like that. So I'm really looking forward to seeing what happens. It's, it's, it's interesting right from the beginning. Um, so we'll see what happens with that. And, and I look forward to my conversation with the author uh, at the end of the month. Um, I've also been reading um, for book group, the book group that I run, Hidden in the Stacks, um, The Secret Diary of Hendrik Grohn, which is a translated work from a Norwegian writer who I've read is, is a, a pseudonym for someone who's famous but is not revealing themselves. So I don't know what the story is there, but uh, it's sort of like if you've heard of the Fred, Frederick Bachman book, um, A Man Called Uve. It's sort of like that um, cranky old guy. Is he really cranky? Does he have, you know, a heart of gold? What's going on there? He's this, um, he's 83 and a quarter years old, and he's in this nursing home in Amsterdam, and a woman that he was in love with years ago becomes a resident, and so somehow his life changes as a result of the new interactions that he has with her. But he does things like He's formed the um, old but not dead club with some of his cronies. And, and he's such a polite man that when a, a resident offers him some pound cake that he can't stand, um, he disguises it in his napkin. And when he leaves her room, he goes up to the fish tank on the third floor and like drops it in the fish tank and kills the fish. And like things snowball from there. Um, it's kind of a quirky, kind of fun little read like that. So um, we'll see what book group has to say about it next week when we meet. Um, but that's what I've been reading. When you were talking about the love proof, the, the kind of this like idea of like applying math to love made me think of a, an abundance of Catherine's by John Green, um, which is like the only John Green book I've actually read because I usually find, I know I usually, I usually like through the reviews or, or the synopsis or anything, I'm like, something sad is going to happen, isn't it? And then I do not that, but this one wasn't sad. Um, like no one dies in the end. So, uh, teens like me who need that disclaimer before they go into a book, no one dies at the end. And it's, a, it was a quick read from what I remember. It's really short. Um, 
And it was a while ago that I read it like as a teenager. So I don't know if I'll think differently about it if I went back and read it as an adult. But I thought it was kind of this fun concept of this kid who is like a prodigy um, at his school, but he's graduating and he doesn't know kind of like what he's going to do with his life going forward. So he goes on this road trip with his friend and all the while throughout the book, he's trying to figure out the formula to figure out like what relationships are going to last and what relation, like who he's this whole thing about, he's got theories about the dumpy and the dumper and like that there's, there's like mathematic. I remember that, that there's like mathematic ways to figure out like who in that relationship is going to dump the other person. Um, and it, all his data is based on 19, I think that feels like a big number uh, all, but some amount of young women all named Catherine that he had dated or was romantically involved with in some like capacity, like a crush or whatever from like him being a kid. And so it just made me think of that. Um, and I wanted to put it out there because I remember enjoying the book when I read it when I was young. So I'm just losing my mind that you read that as a teenager. It, I shouldn't. I need to get used to this. But I was like, yes, as library professionals, we all had to read John Green because he was so popular among our young adult audiences. And then I like listened to what you said. And I was like, oh, you read that as a teenager. Oh, no. Did I make people feel old by accident again? No, no, it's fine. <laughs> fine. No, but it does. It just relates to something that I think about a lot with teen books, which is that there are no teen classics there is no nostalgia among teenagers sometimes they read older books because like adults go tell them to and the outsiders is still recommended at schools but um yeah it makes me wonder too how much longer will young people be reading john green because you know what taylor you're old too in the sense that you are not a teenager and so whatever we enjoyed as teens it has a very short shelf life um which now also makes me want to go see which of the books I read a as a teenager are still on the shelves. The only thing I'm sort of aware of that I think, you know, kind of makes the cuts is Wheatsy Bat and some of the other books by um, Francesca Leah Block, because those were like really groundbreaking when I was a teenager. And so they're still on shelves. Um, but most of what I read as a teenager, you won't find in a teen section anymore. But John Green's still there, still there. But don't get comfortable, Taylor, because pretty soon it's all going to be weeded. That's, his that's newest book is for adults. His newest book is uh, nonfiction essays. So I feel like that's kind of a sign that he's like, yeah, millennials are reading my book. So maybe I should make a book for adults. I noticed that too. And I did think that was interesting. And I also feel like maybe it's a one-off because it's nonfiction, but it did make me wonder, oh, when he goes back to fiction, is he going to change audiences or follow his audience in a sense? So it will be interesting to see. For sure. So I'm really excited to talk about the book I read because things are coming full circle. This is me finally getting around to a book that Emily had mentioned, I think, the first time she came on the podcast. So I've been trying to read everything that Lucy Ninesley has put out. And uh, I realized that I skipped some, though, so I'm going to have to go back. But so I read Relish and I loved it. And I read something new and I loved that, too. Um, and now I've moved on to Kid Gloves. And so I just finished it last night and I, I enjoyed it just as much as the others. It kind of felt like looking into my kind of not so distant future. Something new felt like that too. Um, just like the stage I'm at in my life and the things I would like to do in my life going forward. It was like, yeah, let's take a peek at what like five years from now might look like for me. 
um, without context for everyone, because that, that probably didn't make a lot of sense. But it's because the book is about her experience being pregnant with her first child. So the chapters kind of interchange of the of the memoir of like her particular experience and all this research that she did about pregnancy and how we viewed it socially in terms of like how we care for pregnant people and and how people give birth and and how that's changed and how influenced that's been by like social issues and politics. So Taylor, I just have to ask, are you glad you know all these things? Because I read it after I had a child and I was low-key glad I didn't know some of it ahead of time. Yeah, so um, not to spoil the book too much, but she has a really traumatic birth experience where she almost dies because she was had preeclampsia, but they didn't know until afterwards. Um, and I was like mad that she said about her mom was like so mad at her OBGYN for like not realizing that she had preeclampsia. And like, I was mad too. I was like, you had all the signs and you told him and he didn't do anything and you almost died. Um, so like, <laughs> there was part of me that was, uh, that was like mad on her behalf too, while reading that. Um, and that was a little scary. And I think on top of things that I already find scary about it. But it also was like kind of comforting to know that like she did make it and she got through it and, you know, um, in the end that she's worked through the trauma related to that with her therapist and stuff. Um, and things have gotten better. <laughs> the process of assisting someone who is bearing a child has improved since the medieval era. So, you know. Yeah, no, that definitely... Like, I thought it was interesting in the book she was saying about this kind of, like, like tug of war that was happening between, like, doctors and midwives of, like, doctors wanted to, like, take over being part of the birthing process and bring it into hospitals. And then that had led to, like, more maternal and infant. Yeah, because then they didn't want to, like, just wash their hands. Yeah, because they didn't know anything about germ theory so that a bunch of women and their children were dying from infections because they, like had convinced them to come into the hospital, um, whereas things were going, not that things were perfect, but things were going better when they were just having children at home with midwives and other... Just boiling water and grabbing <laughs> blankets like they do on TV shows. <laughs> like on Call the Midwife, yes. yes. Uh, <laughs> um but yeah, so I really enjoyed it. And now reading this book, though, she mentioned her other books, which some of them I had skipped. So now I got to go back. Um, but I'm really excited to read them because I really enjoyed just her her art style is like very cute and um, colorful, but like in a muted kind of pastel palette. I, I was like, oh, my gosh, I'm going to get to talk about Kid Gloves. And Emily is on the show and she was the one who originally talked about it. I can't tell you how happy that makes me. I just want lots of people to experience this book and just the mashup of um, personal experience and research. I think it's really cool. So also I wish more writers, more writers would produce works like this. It's like my ideal. I love a mashup of fiction and nonfiction. Like this is my experience and this is what I learned about it because that's like a good guide for life, which is what I need and what I, I look for in books. So I know Zach, you've been on recently. So I don't know if you've watched any new things since then. And I know Emily, you've said before about the tiny human in your house keeps you from watching things but uh I wanted to make sure if there was anything you wanted to talk about that we got to it sure um 
my husband and I um, are big fans of the Great British Bake Off, which I've talked about on this show before. Um, new seasons haven't been airing in this country recently, so we've been in a little bit of withdrawal from that. So we started watching the Great Pottery Throwdown, which is very similar. Um, it, it's you know it's in the UK, so it's a it's a bunch of people from various parts of the UK who are brought together for a specific skill set, and these all happen to be amateur potters and. Um, so each week they are assigned a different challenge or two. And then at the end of the episode, somebody is declared um, the best potter of the week and somebody else is eliminated and goes home. Um, and the, the, what's nice about it, a couple of things that we really like, they're all really nice to each other, like really nice to each other. This isn't like Survivor or Big Brother style reality TV. This is much more like we're all artists and we're in this together and let's help each other and let's make beautiful things and show it off to the world. And maybe my beautiful thing isn't so great, but I'm still proud of it. Like that kind of um, camaraderie is, is just really refreshing to see. And um, the other thing that I, I like about it is just seeing what they make. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's quote unquote reality TV, but it's still artificial circumstances. You know, they're, they're still doing things, you know, in a time frame. Uh, that's unrealistic and you know without access to everything that they would have if they were just at home in their studios so there's there's a little bit of artificiality to that side of it you can't deny that but still they they make some really beautiful things and and the judges are really helpful and nurturing one of the judges um i don't remember his whole name but his first name is keith he's some kind of a <clears throat> like a world-renowned potter and um he gets really super emotional when people do really well. Like they, they do get to the part of the show where they go around to see what everyone has made for the challenge. And if someone has done a really outstanding job, he just tears up and chokes up and starts to cry. And 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 everyone knows this and expects this from him because it happens pretty much every single week, sometimes more than once. And everyone just accepts it and embraces him for it because it just shows what a kind person he is and, and how much he's really rooting for these people. So um, it's just a, it's a nice palate cleanser from, you know, the rest of the world. Is it also BBC or I missed that, or is it actually American? Um, I watch it on, on HBO. Um, I think it is a, it's a, a BBC or channel four, one of those British uh, ITV something network um, productions. Um, but HBO has been airing it. Um, I don't think it's available on any other streaming platform, at least not right now. Because that sounds really good. I think there's a gardening one that I've been wanting to check out as well. I've heard people call it like kind core, you know, but something where people actually treat each other nicely. <laughs> Turns out there's a huge audience for that. Um, and I just watched the movie Tenet. So this is this is what's been interesting for me because we haven't been able to go to movie theaters, right? But I've been excited about my at-home experience where I get to watch movies that I would only have been able to see in theaters in whatever increment of time I can before the tiny human wakes up again and is like, where are you? <laughs> Not like right here, always right here. But I'm excited about this, even though I know a lot of actors and uh, movie studios want the return of movie theaters. Um, so I watched <laughs> Tenet because I'm a huge fan of Christopher Nolan. And I feel like I need to talk to someone else who's watched this because I felt like the buzz I heard at the time was like, whoa, that was that was kind of a mess. That was crazy. And I thought it was fantastic. You know, it's definitely one of those things where you, I don't want to say too much because I knew nothing about it going into it. And that's 
the experience, but I will say both objects and people can be moved backwards and forwards through time. And when you as a person or when an object goes is traveling back in time, it's inverted like it does everything backwards. So there are like fight scenes where one person is in their timeline moving forward and the other person is in their timeline moving backward. So you are fighting, a if you're going forward, you're fighting a person who all of their fight moves are backwards. If you can picture that. There's also a car chase where some of the cars are going forward and some of the cars are going backwards. So I don't understand why people weren't more thrilled by this because it doesn't really matter if you understand what's happening or not. You've never seen a fight scene or a car chase like that, have you? So it was really cool. And then even speak in reverse. So like... (laughs) <laughs> they had this special device at one point that like, you know, could flip the talking back around so the people from the future could tell people from the past what was happening and have them understand it. Um, so I was just really into I've seen a, a decent number of time travel uh, movies and read a decent number of books. I haven't read one that had this particular device, which they say is based on physics. One guy's like in a car accident right? and there are flames, but they turn to ice because he's inverted because just lots of random physics things work backwards if you're going back in time is basically the premise of this movie but I loved it so I recommend it and you know maybe other people who watch for different reasons will have a different reaction but backwards fight scenes that's that's my summary you sold me (laughs) yeah good one person at least thank you Zach so in terms of what I've watched recently kind of like in a complete opposite of feel good distractions from the real world. I watched Bo Burnham's most recent comedy special inside. Well, I don't know. Comedy special, I don't know is necessarily the best description for this. Um, But the latest thing that he made called inside, he filmed it during lockdown completely by himself in this room that was like the living space that was like connected to the kitchen. And that seemed like that was it for this whole apartment. And like his feelings of feeling trapped in that space and, and, and kind of like the difficulties of lockdown, but also just like searing commentary of society in general, particularly capitalism and social media and the internet and how plugged in we all are to everything all the time. Um, Like for a movie that was made completely by one person I thought it was really well done. But if you're looking for stuff that's similar to the stuff he'd done previously, some of it felt like it, but that's really not what you're going to get going into this. And if you're looking for something that is like beginning to end funny, like a regular comedy special, you're definitely not going to get that here. Um, Parts of it I felt like were flaring up my own anxiety where he's talking about like, you know, the inevitability of the ending of the world and stuff. And I'm just like, um, yeah, like you, like you make some comment about like, we've been doing this for 20,000 years. So let's enjoy the seven we have left. And I was just like, where did he get the number seven from? Like that made my, <laughs> my anxiety, like shoot through the roof. Um, if you are like into some artsy filmmaking and like I said searing commentary on the world with like one or two songs that are kind of funny and like his old songs um then I encourage you to give it a try can we back up because I'm not familiar with this person so you were saying like from what they did before what did they do before so Bo Burnham is a comedian who writes comedic songs his specials were kind of like 
a cross between like stand up and a concert. He's kind of one of those stories of started putting stuff on YouTube that blew up and then got gigs live and, and make specials for Netflix and, and stuff like that. And then the last special he made was called What, I believe. And the ending song was him saying goodbye to performing. He like pivoted to doing more behind the scenes stuff and, and like other projects. And then after five years, I think, of not having made any stand-up specials or, or performed live or anything, um, he decided to make this one completely from lockdown. And uh, I don't know, if you liked his other stuff and you're interested to see where he's at now, give it a watch, but don't expect it to be the normal escape from stuff that I know myself and a lot of other people like go to comedy specials for. All of Taylor's recommendations this this time around also have warnings attached to them. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Like the actual content warning for that is like discussions of suicide and suicidal ideation. So if that's going to put you in a bad place for real, don't watch it. Um, And I say that with all sincerity. Um, Seriously, watch the Pottery Throwdown. That sounds like it would be a much better choice depending on someone's, yeah, where they're at. At the moment. <laughs> yeah. So it's good. We have, we have some nice contrast here with our recommendations. Something for everybody. And we'll return to the show after a quick break. Want new books but don't want to leave your house? Borrow ebooks and audiobooks to read on your phone or tablet using the Libby app by Overdrive. You can even send and read your borrowed ebooks to your Kindle e-reader, US only. It's easy and free to get started for new users and a streamlined experience for current OverDrive app users. To learn more, visit cranstonlibrary.org or overdrive.com/apps/libby. Novel Tea from the North Situate Library is our place to talk about books, new and old, and share the hottest library gossip. Every month, Catherine will tell you about a great or terrible book, review a brand new cookbook, and spill some tea. Or at least sip some tea. It's been pretty quiet lately. Miss Elise will also drop in for a youth services segment. The show releases on the third Saturday of every month and is available wherever you get your podcasts. Um, and something else that hopefully has a little something for everyone is our summer <laughs> reading program. Good segue. Was that, was that too corny of a segue? Um, I loved it. Emily, why don't you talk to us about kids summer reading and the things that we're going to be offering to patrons? We have um, a children's program that is really for all ages. We have some, you know, special stuff for teens, but a lot of times people come in and ask me like, you know, how old does my child have to be to participate? And we were like, if you are willing to read to them, they can be any age. And last year we pivoted to online like everybody else. And we are using an online reading tracker again this year. So we're using a product called Beanstack. Although I realized that like, you don't really have to worry about the word Beanstack. Um, you just have to look for our summer reading tracker on the website and reading in the wild, or as I say it, when I'm visiting schools, reading in the wild (laughs) 
is our <laughs> summer reading theme. So if you just look for that, but people can enter the time that they spend reading. They added a timer this year. So you can like log in and start the timer and um, just stop it when you're done. It's automatically going to keep track. Kids get digital badges for reading one hour up to 10 hours. And then you can do 15, 20, 30, 40, up to 50 hours, you can earn badges. And every time you earn a badge, you also get a raffle ticket. And all our prizes are animal related, animal encyclopedia, binoculars, free visit to the biome center, that kind of thing. So we're hoping that'll motivate kids to read and that they'll enjoy um, choosing kind of like what prize they might want to win as they are earning their badges. And then we're also doing kits. And you can earn digital badges with the kits, too. They're, and our theme for the kits is Animal Scouts. So every kit has materials for three activities that kids can do to earn an Animal Scout badge. And you really can earn this badge on Beanstack. You go in and check off when you've done all the activities in the kit. Um, and we got a button maker, which is the part that I'm most excited about, in case you couldn't tell. Actually, the part I'm most excited about is children reading. But the second most exciting thing is we got a button maker. So we can make their Animal Scout badges into buttons, you know, so real-life 3D um, buttons. And so I think the buttons look really cool. Like, one's a unicorn, and one's a dinosaur, and one's a paw print. Um, so I think they look really cool, and you'll be able to make them into real buttons if you do um, a kit and earn them. But like last year, we're kind of just trying to put choices out there. Like, you want to you want to set some goals. You want to be intentional. You want to keep track of your the time that you spend reading. You can do that. You want to win prizes. You can do that. You want to do the activities, not worry about anything else. You can just come in and get a kit and like leave it at that. You don't have to go online at all if you don't want to. Or, you know, you can do all of the above. So interested to see what choices people make and hoping that um, there's a little something for everybody, like you said, with your brilliant segue, Kayla. We are offering programs this year, indoor, outdoor, and virtual. But when promoting summer reading for kids, we're kind of focusing on what you can do online and with the kits on your own um, because we just don't know what people's level of comfort is with programming. So we are offering it. It's out there, but we didn't want to make um, a program that you absolutely had to like come into the library regularly to participate in because we just want people to feel very free. We love to have them come visit, but if they don't want to. There's lots and lots and lots of stuff you can do without spending a lot of time in the building. So, um, but we are offering programs. And for our teen program, um, you can also keep track of your reading on Beanstack the same way that the kids can. But we are emphasizing programming a little more. We're thinking that teens would like to get together. Although, again, it's indoor, outdoor, and virtual. So trying to offer something for everybody. And for our teen program, we're going more with the theme of um, choose your own adventure. And so some of the cool programs we're doing, we're doing some some things that really work well outdoors. We're trying to embrace like, okay, we have to do some outdoor programming. What could we never do indoors? And so we're doing like tie-dye, making ice cream, like messy things like that. We're all about the summer camp vibes. And me and some of my staff have experienced as summer camp counselors. So we're digging deep and we're putting on our shorts and we're practicing yelling across loud open spaces so that we can deliver programs. And then we're also doing virtual programs um, 
we're doing, and you know about this, Taylor, because you're doing an RPG program, a role-playing game, which sounds really cool. Um, it's called Honey Heist. And so it sounds like something, too, that if you like role-playing games, obviously this program is for you. But if you've never done one before and want to try it in a virtual context, um, this one's for you, too. And this is nice because there's a kit you pick up, and then you get to play the game online if you like. So that's a neat one that has a variety of ways to participate. And I'm also really excited we're doing an author visit. So Kat Lay is the author of Snapdragon, a graphic novel that's also a Rhode Island Middle School Book Award nominee. And she just seems really chill. And I'm really excited. I think the book is really fun and a lot of teens have already read it. So I'm hoping that um, they'll be excited to have this opportunity to, to talk with the author. So we're, we're doing a lot of other cool programs for teens, but those are kind of some of the highlights and some of the things that I think are like special this year. We wouldn't have done them last year and you know, we might not do them next year, but like this is the perfect year for these programs. So that's some of the stuff we have going on this summer for um, people zero to 18. I'm really glad that we all were able to make it happen, that we could offer virtual and outdoor and indoor for the kids. So Zach, what about adults? What can they look forward to at the library this summer? Well, I wish I could say that adults could look forward to some button making. Um, <laughs> Emily, you might have to chain down that button maker. I might have to <laughs> poke around and take a look at that. Oh no, um, I revealed our secrets again. Oh no. <laughs> um. Our theme for the Adult Summer Reading Program this year is the art and science of reading. And um, don't worry that that doesn't really sound like a beachy kind of thing. I mean, maybe hopefully to some people it does, but um, I'll explain how we came up with that. First of all, I mentioned before that our kickoff event is in conversation with the author, Madeline Henry, author of The Love Proof, about the physics prodigy. Um, so that sort of developed the science side of things. And then the following week, we have a virtual event called The Discovery of a Masterpiece, um, which is going to be presented by um, a woman who I believe is a teacher now, but she had an art history degree and was working as a curator at a, at a municipal building in New Jersey. She was hired to do sort of an inventory of all the various art objects in this building. And it turned out that in one of the, the meeting rooms in the corner was a bust of Napoleon that had been sculpted by Rodin. And nobody knew that it was an authentic Rodin. And so her whole presentation is the process of figuring that out, tracking that down, getting experts to authenticate how long that took and, and what she learned from that. Um, so that was the art side of things. And we have other programs going on as well um, that are related to those kinds of ideas. We have Artist Gardens in New England, um, which is part of our Tuesday Tune-Up series. Um, we're going to have um, Walking Rhode Island, a guide to hiking in the ocean state. We have book groups going on. So it's the same kind of thing as with youth services, where you can um, participate in various activities for which you can earn a badge. And when you earn a badge, that enters you into the raffle prize drawing for the end of the summer. Um, and there are a number of ways that you can achieve that, aside from attending activities. And we do have online activities and in-person activities as well. You can read, of course, that is, you know, the genesis of the whole summer reading program. Um, you can read anything you want and you can review anything you want to earn a badge for that. But we also have some suggested reading themes uh, that we're hoping people will sort of run with. Um, for example, one of them is read a book set on a boat, um, read a book set in the future, read something from a new genre, read a book about a road trip, you know, some fun things like that. And we have some suggested titles to go along with each one of those topics as well. So if you're intrigued by the title, but wouldn't know where to start, 
you've got something to click on where you can read through and get some ideas. And of course, you can always check with library staff. We're always happy to make recommendations. You can um, grab a take and make kit as well. So for the first time, we're going to be doing some adult crafting at Central. And um, we're going to have three Saturday morning programs that we're calling Maker Morning. And the three individual craft topics are a hummingbird feeder, a hand-sewn journal, and then a blackout poetry crafting session, which I'm going to be doing in August. So I'm very excited about that. Um, so you can either come in person for those crafting sessions, or you can do the take-and-make version where you, you register for it. One is reserved for you, and then you take it home and, and do it on your own. Of course, more information will be available about all of this stuff on the Summer Reading website. Um, you can use the reading tracker, the Beanstack app, um, if you want. We are going to try to have um, paper versions for some of this stuff available for those who are Beanstack-averse. But um, it sounds like it's going to be really fun. We are using Beanstack for the first time for adult summer reading. And we'll see how that goes. So now everyone in the family can participate in terms of tracking their reading and doing online activities all in the same place. So you don't have to sign up for 20 different accounts just to track things and do things. You can track your reading and your family's reading all in one place. So I think hopefully people will find that convenient. I think that that is a good thing for people. I have an important question, Zach. Does the Blackout Poetry Kit, like, do people get pages from library books or do they provide their own pages? We are providing everything you need. Ooh, that sounds very cool. So um, we wrap up the show with the segment I call The Last Chapter, where we talk about a library or bookish-related question. So this week, I thought, since we're talking all about summer reading, that I would ask you both, what's a book that always makes you think of summer or has a summary feel to you? Um, the, the first book that comes to mind is Never Let Me Go by Kazuo Ishiguro, um, which is definitely not a summer beach read, but it's one of my favorite books ever. And I always hate to say too much about this book because um, the big pleasure of it for me reading it was what I learned as I read it. You know, no spoilers. So um, there, there are a group of young people who are living in what we could call a, a boarding school. And they're supervised closely by the adults who are looking out for them. And you gradually learn why these young people are living there. Um, and one of the things that they do, they go to the shore. Um, I think it's Brighton. I, I could be remembering it completely wrong. And the, the whole seaside feel is really well developed there. Um, and it's such a contrast to everything else that's going on in the book. So that's why I'm offering that one up. I know that that doesn't really provide much information about why uh, I chose that book, but that's the one that came to mind. That is a good one. And I was like, what does that have to do with summer? But you you connected it. You did it. Yes. And it is. It's really good. And it's a book that, for me, provides like a really strong like emotional reaction, which I think is what I'm looking for a lot of times in my summer reads, even if, you know, a variety of different kinds of emotions, but I like something that transports me. So, yeah. So my summer read, this is not super obscure, but only because it's not that old. It came out a few years ago, but I don't think it's very well known. So Suzanne LaFleur writes children's books, that upper middle grade kind of like, and I have to say in general, I love 
kind of a coming of age, like a book about a 12 year old. They're starting to learn some things about the world and figure stuff out. They're more sophisticated. They start to question things, but they're not teenagers yet. It's just a really interesting moment. And I have to say, I love a lot of books about 12 year olds. There's something about that age. It's liminal. So um, anyway, Suzanne LaFleur, I, I like all of her work, but she has one called Listening for Luca, and it's about a family looking for a change of environment because the main character's younger brother has stopped talking. So there's that kind of interesting mystery going on, but also the house they move to, the main character sees it in a dream before they move there. And once they're there... There's an interesting device where she finds, um, I think it's a pen, it's some kind of writing implement that when she uses it, it allows her to go, um, I don't know if you want to call it back in time, or she's this experience of someone who used to live in that house, she kind of goes into their time, um, and just sees what they see. So really, she's just learning their story. She's not like acting, and she's not visible in the other timeline. So I love everything about it. It just has everything that I love in a book. Um, but also that main setting, I grew up moving around a decent amount, but there were a couple summers that we rented a house for a week um, in Maine. And it's just one of those books where the way she writes about it puts me there again. Like I have that sort of like, you know, visceral, physical memory of um, what it felt like, you know, the heat, the sand, the sun, and, and that summery feeling, but also what it felt like to be 12 and in this like different place where I had just enough independence. Like my parents would let me like walk to the sandwich shop by myself and I would like see other kids around my age doing kid things. Um, and I guess I really loved that because when I read this book, I was like, oh yeah, I know exactly what it feels like to be in this kind of like beach community community, but to be new to it and not like already integrated. And of course, then I just was on vacation, but the girl's actually going to live here. So I guess she acts out a little bit of my fantasy. Like what if instead of just vacationing, I was moving to this place and I really got to know the people here and I really got to live in one of these, you know, old houses. So, um, so yes, yeah, Suzanne LaFleur and listening for Luca, it has ghosts. It has a summer setting. It has a mystery about a younger brother. It's, uh, it's really good. And I don't know more people don't love it as much as I do, but you can find it at Cranston Public Library. I love it. So it's on our shelves. So going back again to kind of like things that I read when I was young, thinking about books that make me think about summer, make me think about books that were part of summer reading assignments. I mean, maybe this is early indications that I was meant to be a librarian, but I was, I feel like I was very fortunate that the stuff that was on the summer reading list, I frequently enjoyed, even if I did think I was going to enjoy it at the beginning. And so one of the ones that I thought of that I really enjoyed was In the Time of the Butterflies by Julia Alvarez. And again, not light reading. Um, it's a pretty serious book. So I remember it being one of the summers of middle school and me choosing to read this book and finding out about a lot of things that people in other countries went through that I didn't know about. So it's historical fiction. It's about these two sisters living during a time where the Dominican Republic was under a dictatorship. And so that was like history from another part of the world that I didn't really know about. And like these experiences of these two women. So I just remember being like very surprised by this book, you know, it felt like things that could have happened to people then. So to just these moments of just like, oh my God, the things that these characters went through 
during this time and, and under this particular government, I remember being like shocking to me in a way that it caused me to have to think about people who had a different experience than I had for the first time. So I, but I don't remember if any part of this book ter- took place during the summer. Like it, it jumped around a lot that it started with them being like young teenagers and, and went forward in time into later in their life. So I'm sure some summer stuff did happen in this book. But like I said, I just like have distinct like visceral memories of like laying on the couch at my grandmother's house. So, so summer reading assignments make me think about summer. That's a really good book, though. And I feel like historical fiction used to be a little more popular for young people. But even now, like you said, you might not have encountered it if it wasn't on a list. And, you know, I always have mixed feelings about summer reading lists because kids come in here and, you know, they feel like they have to read something off the list. But sometimes at the same time, lists can expose you something you wouldn't read. And man, I wish more kids would read historical fiction because of what you said. Like, you know, it provides a lot of the same level of interest as like a fantasy novel, because it's in some cases, a completely different world. Um, But it's also like you said, telling you something about how people really live. So I think it's not it's a genre that doesn't get a lot of love right now. And I think it's a shame because it can be a really transporting reading experience too. For sure. So thank you both for joining me. And uh, if people want to reach out to us here at Downtime, they can do that by emailing us at downtime at cranstonlibrary.org. And if you're feeling generous, please go and rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. It helps people find the show. Um, So thank you again for listening. And this has been another episode of Downtime. a project of the Cranston Public Library and is produced by Zach Berger, Martha Boxenbaum, Robin Nizio, and me, Taylor Cardillo. Audio engineering by Dave Bartos. Our theme music is Day Trips by Ketza, and our ad music is Happy Ukulele by Scott Holmes. Links to the books and movies discussed can be found in the show notes. Remember to rate and review Downtime on Apple Podcasts, connect with the podcast on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram with the hashtag DowntimeCPL, And if there's something you'd like to hear on the show, send an email to downtime at cranstonlibrary.org. Join us next week for more Downtime. I've been working on my animal noises. I can do an elephant now, which is actually like pretty difficult, I just have to say. But it's very useful to a children's library, and I've already used it in like three read-alouds. Also, you're not going to demonstrate it. I mean, I can. I will now attempt to make an elephant sound. (laughs) Thank you. Yeah, that's my elephant sound. Uh